0: This podcast contains some very open conversations about parenthood and mental health, so there may be some content that listeners might find triggering or upsetting. Please listen at your own discretion, and for help or support, look at the episode description for resources. And please do. Asking for help was the best thing I ever did. I'm Laura Dockrell, and this is Zombie Mum, a podcast that aims to normalize the conversation surrounding mental health and parenthood, hearing voices from the perspective of both parents and children, for some empathetic, compassionate, heartbreaking, heartwarming, real talk. She writes books, she writes articles, she runs, she talks, she laughs, she mothers, she campaigns, she raises money and awareness, and I'm pretty sure she saves lives. Bryony Gordon understands the human brain and condition. She has that warm tone that is a bit scientist, bit that cool teacher that is sort of your friend that sits on your desk and plays YouTube videos, but mostly she is your friend. You can talk to Bryony without judgement or pretense. You can say it how it is, how it feels where it hurts, you can bear all because you know she gets it you only have to read one of her books or articles to know that I began reading Briony's work back to front. It was in lockdown that I read Glorious Rock Bottom, a confessional, powerful and moving memoir in which Briony tells the story of addiction and recovery whilst parenting. It is so well written. There is darkness and there is humour. I remember reading bits out to Hugo at night, reading bits down the phone to friends, my sister borrowing it and another friend cycling over to borrow it after that that proof copy is worn down and tea-stained. Bryony is living proof that being alive isn't linear, it isn't easy-peasy, it isn't a Hollywood romance film. And for all of that, for all of its ugly, scary monsters, she still seems to be head over heels in love with it all. She seems to love life so hard because she recognises you can live alongside something difficult. I admire and look up to Bryony so much, how she uses her voice to create a platform to inform, educate, endorse and create. Her world is such a safe space for conversation, a house to retire, repair, recover, recharge, recoup and rest All the things beginning with R. A cosy living room for a cup of tea and a slice of cake to talk about the big stuff. A ginormous bed for a sleep. A wrecking room to smash stigmas. A yard to pound out the trauma and get the blood flowing. Where the door is always open and the warmth hugs the street. The beautiful, kind soul that is Bryony Gordon.
1: Hi, Bryony Gordon. Hi, Laura
2: Dockrell. How are you?
1: <laughs> I, I was hoping you were going to say that because I remember the first time I saw you on the street, I was like, Bryony Gordon, it's me, Laura Dockrell." And then you were like, hello, Laura Dockrell," <laughs> <laughs> And suddenly we were like boarding school kids. <laughs> So I just want to take it right back because I feel like I, you know, when you, you read someone's book and you're like, oh my goodness, it's the girl from the book, like the main character, but then you realize, oh no, you're an actual person and I see you. So I guess I wanted to ask about the stuff that I don't really know. How was
2: your pregnancy? My pregnancy? Oh my God, it was fucking awful. <laughs> my daughter's seven now, so it was like a long time ago. And people often ask like, oh, are you ever going to have, they stopped asking now, but are you ever going to have another one? And the answer to that is absolutely not because the experience of pregnancy was genuinely quite traumatic and um, my experiences of really losing my mind happened when I was pregnant and so I didn't really know it at the time but I was an alcoholic and an addict in like active alcoholism and addiction but I sort of saw myself as a party girl and I met this nice guy and within about eight months was pregnant and I genuinely thought, oh, that's it. I'm cured. I'm cured of my crazy ways. You know, I was pregnant. I didn't want to drink. Obviously, I didn't want to take drugs. It was, you know, it was all like, pregnancy is going to do for me what a course of rehab does for everyone else. Do you know what I mean? I have had, since I was about 12, like very, very chronic obsessive compulsive disorder. So for long periods of my life, it made me unable to like leave the house when I was a little girl. And obviously I used, sort of dr- obviously, drugs and, out. you know, there, there was no, you know, I was I was 12 in 1992, do you know what I mean? So there was not massive awareness of mental health issues, but there certainly was no treatment. It is a treatable condition, was kind of left unchecked. And as is often the case, these mental health issues become bigger and bigger. I always describe it as like a magnet picking up metal shavings. And so...
3: As I got older,
2: I turned to alcohol and drugs and I was very unwell really when I got pregnant and I didn't know I was unwell. I just thought I was a crazy party girl in her early 30s. You know, it was a bit of a surprise and I was terrified. Most people are. I was terrified that something was going to happen to the baby. But I also immediately took myself off the antidepressants I'd been on since I was about 17, which is not a good idea, I can tell you. Did you taper off those or you just I literally stopped I just literally stopped, literally stopped them, them. them cold-taking. I mean, you wow. know, when I think about it, I was 31, 32 when I found out I was pregnant, but I really do look back and think I was a child. <laughs> like, mentally, I was a child. <laughs> yeah, I had no sure. coping mechanisms. I was amazed that I managed to stay alive, frankly. I was terrified that I was going to hurt the baby with the antidepressants. And then you throw in all the hormones. I mean, it was so bad that I got referred to my local mental health crisis team actually so I was put under the care of something called MAPIM which I later when I looked it up was for mothers and you know mothers to be with serious complex mental illness and it kind of like takes my breath away now because I just thought I was just a normal fucked up human do you know what I mean and so yeah pregnancy was not fun for me it was like constant fear it was a surprise and it wasn't planned and all of that I didn't know if I was going to be able to do it and but I think that's a very normal feeling for all women you know when they first get pregnant you know it did get easier because I had this care from the NHS which was amazing and I went back on my antidepressants when I was pregnant I had this strange thing where I was like I couldn't wear blue knickers because I would miscarry that was my like all of these weird like safety things and it's fascinating because I do think a lot of people have obsessive compulsive traits I had definitely had
1: those symptoms when I was little, not as extreme as you had them. But, you know, I would worry that, you know, this was going to happen or that was going to happen. Or if I did this it, and if I touched the banner stuff five times, I used to call them daring myself. I'd be like, oh, I'm daring myself. Mm-hmm. I remember saying to my mum once in the middle of the night, stomping through and going, mum, I can't stop daring myself. And her being like, what What do you mean? And I do superstitious thinking without think, you know, on the drains, whatever, you can't walk on three drains and all this mm-hmm. sort of stuff. When my head split open, they all came rushing back. Mm. You know, after my recovery, I wasn't psychotic anymore. And I was on the antidepressants and it was kind of a bit like, okay, done and dusted now, get back to your normal everyday life, Laura. You've had your psychosis, you've been hospitalised, you've got a baby to look after. And then suddenly it was like my brain had cracked and I was like, I've got all this stuff now to live alongside. If I read where the wild things are before Jet goes to sleep, I won't get mad again. Mm. If
2: I... Put him in these trousers. He. I won't lose the plot. Again. I always describe it as your brain refusing to acknowledge what your eye can see. So often it's that you know the oven is not off, that the door isn't locked. The type I have is bureau, which is in regards to thoughts. So it's intrusive thoughts, and we all have thousands of thoughts every day, and we all have intrusive thoughts, but most of us just allow them to go. You know, whereas. Someone with OCD becomes so kind of traumatized by the thoughts that they have to carry out rituals such as tapping the banister five times or whatever. It's not talked about that often because you know obviously my my type of OCD and you know whenever I say to people, "Oh, I've got OCD." They go, "Oh, me too. You should see my sock drawer." And I want to literally yeah, totally. like club them over the head. <laughs> not that I advocate violence in any way. But, like, that wasn't my type of OCD, and it sort of undermined it, really, because I had a type of OCD that made me think I was a serial-killing paedophile. And guess what? People don't talk about that over the dinner table. And I had these intrusive thoughts. What if I murdered someone last night and blanked it out in horror? What if I, and then when I had my daughter, what if I did something awful to my child in the middle of the night and blanked it out? I knew then, when it related to my child, that I had to get help because it wasn't just affecting me, it was affecting my husband, Harry, and my daughter as well. We obviously don't talk about this stuff that often because it's like, what? You think you're going to get arrested? You think people are going to drag you away, you know?
3: If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it.
1: I thought when you get pregnant, not in a deluded way, but like you can't really get colds, friends can't fall out with you. You kind of feel like you have this like Saturn like ring of protection around you, where like for that time, I'm pregnant, I'm doing the main thing. Yeah. So I can't have all this other stuff. I don't need medicine for anything else because I'm doing the thing, the main thing. I can totally see how you would be like, yeah, I can come off the antidepressants. It's fine. And I think we're, I don't want to be as explicit as to say someone tells us this, but as like young girls, maybe many of us are wrapped in kind of shame and fear or terror or, you know, pain with our periods beginning. I'm not generalising. I know many people have babies in all sorts of ways. But you feel it's going to be this moment. You've got this kind of, how I felt anyway, this like seed in my body down there somewhere that's just going to blossom and bloom and I'm going to immediately know what
2: to do. Yeah, and I also think that, I feel slightly ashamed saying it now, but there is that narrative that is taught to us, whether we like it or not, as girls... You know, even though we're told you can have a career, you can, you know, like still me, I'm 40. You know, I was born in 1980 and there was very much like, you can be an engineer, you can do whatever you want. You're as good as the boys or whatever. But there was still very much, you know, it's all well and good your parents telling you that. But if you're watching endless television programs or kids' movies where it's sort of like happily ever after and the story is about the princess meeting the Charming Prince. It's it's sort of, to me, success was getting a man to stay with me. And like, I feel quite (laughs) ashamed of that, you know, but it's the truth. It was how it was then. For me, it was like, well, once you get the house, the husband, the child, your life is sorted. And I was like, oh, fuck, that hasn't happened. You know, like, that has not happened. Two weeks after my daughter was born, I was like, back in the pub and I was like telling myself I was like <laughs> I need this like this is making me a good mom. like I still need to be me when my child goes to sleep I need to like relax and let my hair down and all of that stuff you know the only thing that had changed was that I had a child I mean that's a big thing that had changed but otherwise I was still me I was still me with my OCD and my cripplingly low self-esteem and my alcoholism and all of the other problems that I had accrued over decades of being mentally ill and not having any treatment for it, you know, having a baby hadn't changed that. And sometimes I am um, like gasp because when I kind of nail it down and, and put it in that like 30 second soundbite, it does sound like, why did no one take that baby away from you, you know? <laughs> you know, I told myself because I only drank at night when she was asleep and all of that. And I didn't wake up in the morning and drink. And I only went on like drug benders once every three months or whatever. I made sure she was with my granny or something like that. It wasn't a problem, but it felt like a problem. And I remember taking myself in the lunch break to like a 12-step meeting. I think it was Narcotics Anonymous or Cocaine Anonymous. And I heard this man talk about how he thought that having children and getting married would be able to put his drug use in perspective and he'd stop because he loved them and that love should be enough to stop you but it wasn't and I remember just like sobbing because it resonated and I was like why can't I sorry why can't I stop behaving like this I've got a little beautiful daughter and I've got you know people that rely on me and I think that was really the you know the the realization for me that I had a problem you know and that it was It went beyond sort of just fun party girl lifestyle. And um, the reason I decided to write Glorious Rock Bottom and write about that stuff is because it's so common. So many women experience this, you know, that sort of juxtaposition of being a mum and having a family and on the front of it being successful and all of that. But then on the other side, still Mm -hmm. having these sort of, these huge issues that they feel that they should have grown out of, but they haven't. You don't grow out of mental illness, unfortunately, you know. It grows into you as you grow up and, and it blooms and it gets bigger and bigger. I remember when I turned up in rehab sort of three and a half years ago, I remember thinking I was the worst woman in the world. I remember thinking I was the only mother in the world who behaved like this, who would drink to blackout, who would occasionally end up on cocaine benders and go AWOL. And I walked into rehab and the first person I met was another mother <laughs> my age who had kids the same age. And I was like, oh my God, you were there all along. You know, that's the tragedy is that all mental illnesses, and I and I do think that addiction and alcoholism should be classed as mental illnesses. What they all have in common is that they lie to you and they isolate you and they tell you you're a freak and they tell you that you're alone and they tell you that no one's going to understand what you're going through. And that's just bullshit. Do you know what I mean? They work in a culture of isolation. They work in in this sort of culture of silence. And so it's really important that we break through that thing because not only is there someone out there who understands what you're going through right now, there's someone out there who is going through what you're going through right now, you know, and... Either we want people to get better from these illnesses, or we are just too embarrassed and w- refuse to talk about them, and people just stay unwell. And not only do those people stay unwell, but all the people around them, the children, the partners, the mothers, the fathers, the sisters, suffer as well.
3: You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host, created it, been doing it for seven years.
1: I just read uh, Unexpected Joy of Being Sober as well. You both talk about that, the glamorizing of alcohol, which is something I guess I didn't realize how scary it is where it goes hand in hand with mothers. And of course, we know the whole mother's ruin Mm. with gin and the alcohol being yours. You say your treat, your reward at the end of the day that you need to unwind. And it's Actually, everywhere from like birthday cards. I'm sure you got those birthday cards. I used to get those birthday cards and I'm not even, wouldn't even be classed as a party girl. But when you start realising, so what happened with me was I didn't want to start taking the sleeping tablets anymore. I was so afraid of being addicted Mm. to sleeping tablets so i thought i know what i'll do i'll just drink alcohol because i'm finding i'm falling asleep straight away really lovely like beautifully falling asleep basically drunk next to a child (laughs) asleep and it only happened for a very short time i i would say my experience was like two or three weeks where i found myself looking in the house and being like shit i've not got anything to drink tonight how am i going to sleep and that's when i thought no no and i remember saying this is a trap i suddenly saw mm. the trap of alcohol like because then it wasn't two glasses of wine wasn't working three glasses of wine yeah. wasn't working I was wide awake and my doctor saying why are you drinking and I said I don't want to be addicted to sleeping tablets and he just said I'm so much more worried about you becoming addicted to alcohol than sleeping tablets and that just seems so far away me being addicted to alcohol but it isn't well
2: alcohol you know and this is the thing I'm not anti-alcohol do you know what I mean like I and, and I <laughs> yeah I know and I think of that you know I don't want people to think oh you know like if you can have one or two drinks of an evening and then cut out that's fine do you know what I mean like life is really too short and too hard if you can't do that if you're like me you know one is too many and a thousand's never enough is the saying you have in recovery circles right then it isn't good but also alcohol is a depressant that masquerades remarkably well as a relaxant when i was drinking i was like i don't give a shit about tomorrow all i care about is now and now i feel like shit i feel stressed out i feel awful i need to numb myself
1: When Jet was born, you know, Hugo and I would drink, probably because, like you and Harry, we got pregnant pretty quickly. I wanted to keep the party going, and because of what had happened to me, because of being as ill as I was, I was like, oh, no, all this time has been wasted of us having a good time and drinking pints. I just thought, I want to keep that going. You talk about how much more time you've got as a mum, you know, being able to read your daughter books after book after book, and, like, being on a child's level in that purity, like, not needing anything, just that that's when you get a bigger rush, isn't it? A big joy, endorphin rush, more powerful than any alcohol could give you. Yeah,
2: totally. You know, undoubtedly being sober has made me, I'd even hazard to say a really good mum. Like, I'm a really good mum. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I have my flaws, I have my faults, but... You know, we always think, I think, as well about alcoholic parents as, like, beating their children or, you know, it's a, we put them in that bracket because it's safer because then we don't have to see it close to us. And actually, yeah, sure. for me, it's not the things I did to ED, It was the things I didn't do. So it was, like, not reading the story at night. It sounds like simple things to a lot of people, but for me, it's really precious to be able to, like, plait her hair and... <laughs> You know, before she goes to no, school.
1: No, I, I think they're golden touches mm. that as a mum, they're the most powerful ones. It's not what we have, those cinematic versions of being your child's play, you know, clapping and
2: these tears springing out of your eyes. Because it's it still so much time. It does steal so much time. Like, it didn't really matter that I didn't drink all day because I was thinking about drinking all day. You said something earlier that I don't want to forget because it was.
1: it is actually one of my favourite parts of your book because I could identify with it so much and I think only someone that has gone through what we have gone through, which I'm talking about needing some sort of intervention or professional care of some kind. You go to your rehab. I know that feeling of trying to be someone's mum but really needing your own mum at the same time and mm. you don't know where to turn to. There's this massive voice barking at you, being like, why can't you just get your shit together? Why can't you just get your shit together? Someone really needs you and you can't be found. You go into the bathroom cabinet and you take some
2: night nurse to sleep and you actually have a really good sleep, I yeah. think, that yeah, night, Yeah, I did, you? yeah. And then um, I nearly got suspended from rehab. They described it as a using incident. My counsellor at rehab was like, did you take the night nurse... To, I don't even know why I told him, really, but I guess I was getting into that. I was getting into that whole honesty thing. He was like, did you take the night nurse because you had a cold or flu? And I was like, no. He was like, did you take the night nurse to knock yourself out? It was like, yes. He was like, then it's a using incident. I'm like, for fuck's sake. How am I getting suspe- almost suspended from rehab for taking night nurse, for taking cough medicine? <laughs> Ah, It was a really good point. And, you know, when you mentioned the sleeping pills, you know, there are lots of little things in life that we do become reliant on without even realising it, you know, that are not necessarily healthy. And I I can always tell because I still, to this day, and I I haven't had it for a while, but like, you know, I'll, I'll become a bit reliant on the melatonin I bought the last time I was in America. As someone in recovery, you need to be really careful about that kind of stuff. I could get addicted to a paving stone if it allowed me to
1: (laughs) but your book has saved your
2: life as well I'm sure yeah I feel I don't know about you Phil but like there's a relief when you've exposed it to the light and people don't immediately and it shouldn't really matter what other people think of course but like when the response is one of compassion and not anger or whatever, because I, I did worry that people will be like, oh, my God, lock her away. And then what happens is you just hear more and more stories from other people who have gone through exactly the same thing as you, and you realise you're not a freak. You, you know, you're not special, actually. You're just <laughs> another human with a brain, and brains, guess what, sometimes misfire, just like all the rest of the organs in our bodies, you know, and like... That's the truth of it. (laughs) Our brains could be misfiring for a number of complex reasons, such as the way we were brought up and unhelpful things that we learned about ourselves and all of that. But, you know, when we really knuckle it down, it is an organ misfiring I think there's
1: a, a misconception that if you're mentally unwell, you're suffering, that you're scary, and actually, in truth, you're scared. I was really scared, and I believed people in my delu- in my delusions that someone was going to steal my child. I never got any of the euphoric stuff. I never thought I was God or anything great. I thought I was the worst person on earth. But yet, still, there's something that makes me think... I'm protecting here. I'm still... And I still have that. I still think after everything that happened, I've got afraid of myself that was like, no, no, I did... was still doing right no, in my mind. No, but you were, you know, and you By jet. You were by trying je- to...
2: And this is what... And it is so misunderstood. And I, and I think it's really important. And I do think that is the key to unlocking a lot of the stigma around it, you know. For me, the greatest help... For my understanding of my obsessive compulsive disorder and all the other things around it, the thing that really unlocked it for me was understanding why I, as a little girl, was so frightened that I had to create this weird coping mechanism to make myself feel safe. And of course, it didn't. But so, psychotherapy and those kind of like that real digging in, it's really important. And so, for me, being able to unlock that and have the perspective of why it was and why it is doesn't stop these thoughts from coming it doesn't stop these episodes from happening but what it does mean is that when I'm in the episode I can distance myself slightly from it and it means I will move through the episode a lot quicker than I did previously when my only coping mechanism was alcohol drugs do you know what I mean a lot of people think when they're going through a mental health
1: crisis, a episode illness, that they're being like hijacked by the devil or kidnapped, yeah. their body's been taken over. I don't even just be in psychosis. They're just like, what is well, this it is monster? like your body
2: has been taken over. Like I always I always say that. It's like you do have to see it as like in the invasion of the body snatchers, Right. And because it's because it's so similar, I call my OCD or all my, all my mental health issues, I call it Jareth the Goblin King, right? Like the, yeah. like the like David Bowie character in Labyrinth, sort of evil but ever so slightly enticing, which sort of sums up. And if I imagine him in my head, and he can use a voice that is almost indistinguishable to my own. So it's like that thing of when you are in the grips of something, like depression or an anxiety disorder or something more you kind of have to do the opposite of what you want to do because what you want to do quote unquote is actually your illness driving you so you have to turn it on its head Mm. and it's it is like being taken over by a sort of devilish thing And, and i think sometimes if you think that way it's quite it's quite helpful like See, you've got the
1: opposite to me. They encouraged us to have a voice and a name at the hospital, and I that just gave it too much really? power. So what you'll say, yeah, I would be like, oh no, now it's got now that I have actually do have somebody living in my head. The science stuff, that is what helped me because my brain, I at school, hate science, go away from maths, it's not not my jam. I remember when I got the guts to look at a brain scan of what someone's brain looks like when they're going through psychosis. You can actually see it like in a scan. Um the science is so important because when I see that like, this is just chemicals, and there's a real comfort in just letting your human self just crawl and drag and get to where you need to know, but know that it's science and your body will repair
2: and get back to where it I needs think to go Part of the trouble we have as a society is that our obsessive quest for happy makes us profoundly unhappy, and so mm-hmm. when People come to me and they freak out because their child has OCD and they're like, their life is going to be ruined. I'm like, calm down. It's not because you you are getting them treatment at the age of 12. Like, that's amazing. This won't take over their life. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, and it may be tricky, but you can't stop people's brains from misfiring. That's not... You know you can't stop people from having bad feelings and intrusive thoughts, you know, and nor would we want to do that, because that would basically involve lobotomizing everyone, right? <laughs> what we can do is teach people that it's very normal to have these thoughts, and we don't have to freak out when we have them, you know, or if we do freak out, it's okay. there are ways to kind of bring ourselves back. And I you know everything is manageable. everything is manageable. We teach kids how to be happy, but we don't teach them how to be unhappy. And I think that's a real mistake. My daughter, as most children will, she'll get herself in a right state over something. And my instinctive reaction is to say, don't cry, don't worry or whatever. And I have to stop myself from saying that to her. And I'm like, no, do cry. If you want to cry, that's what you should do. You should cry until you've got it all out. And let's manage this in a healthy way that feels safe to you, you know. But this is just the way British culture very much is. Like I don't know about you, but when I was a kid and if I got like worked up about something, my parents would say, don't be silly, don't be ridiculous, all of that. And so yeah, totally. we learn from a very young age to undermine negative emotions. And we kind of equate, you know, good, they're good and they're bad. And it's nice to be happy, obviously. It's, you know, that's the optimal place to be. But you're not failing as a human being if you're down in the dumps or you're miserable or you're suffering from anxiety or depression. Do you know what I mean? It's it's very much your brain reacting to external factors. And often there seemingly aren't any external factors and you can't work it out. Do you know what I mean? But it, it is all manageable. It is all manageable. And, um, you know, we're proof of that, right? The fact that we're sitting here totally. talking about this stuff. And, you know, now more than ever, it's so crucial that we instill these beliefs in people because, you know, I worry about the isolation that is becoming very normal and the people out there who might be suffering and not really know how to access help because they feel like they might be a burden on the NHS, you know, it's really tough but it is manageable, it is doable and there is stuff out there to help you.
0: The bit that really stuck in my head from your book was about you and the conker. Could you explain this conker moment for anyone who hasn't read so the book? The fucking conker.
2: The book opens with me on my last night of drinking. It's late August and I was walking to the pub to meet this person I barely knew, but just who I could get out of it with. And I came across a conker and it really pissed me off because I knew that the game was up with my drinking and I'd sort of made this deal with myself that when my daughter started school I would stop drinking I would tackle the problem and the conquer was like it was like this is too soon you know and I I don't want to see this conquer. this conquer should not be falling it's August you know I need another three or four weeks of drinking and it was like I was so cross with it it was like I was I was basically really it was a metaphor for just me being cross about what was which was that I was an alcoholic and I needed help and I just couldn't accept it I just wasn't I was just like everything's wrong and I took a picture of it actually and I posted it on Instagram and I captioned it something like autumn is coming or winter is coming and now of course (laughs) congas are like a a lovely you know I, I remember that a year later you know being sober and we got some like buckets from you know a holiday we'd been on to Dorset and took them up to Wandsworth Common and um and just filled them, me and my daughter, with Conkers. And it was like such an about turn, you know? And, and, and it felt to me like that seasons change and time moves on, and we mm. all. You know, just the Conker season we've just had. It's special to me, you know, because it is a representative of how much has changed and and how much can change. You know, everything stays the same. The Conkers will still fall every September or whatever, or August. But the ability we have to change within those seasons is amazing. And and it's something I always hold on to, especially if I'm feeling bleak. Life is uncertain. That can be a negative thing, but we also never know when the miracle's going to happen, right? We never know what's around the that corner. That's beautiful what would you say to little briny little briny I I try and like hold her now I just say you're you're okay you're better than okay and it is going to be okay I just try and understand her a bit instead of sort of telling her to shut up (laughs) I try not to tell her to shut up and stop being a drama queen which was often what I was told as a child (laughs) Uh, I try to say the opposite but it's not always easy but you know, progress, not perfection, right? And so you say you've got a new book coming out. Yeah, Um, it's called No Such Thing as Normal. It's everything I've learned about being mentally well from being mentally ill. It's not a guidebook because I don't ever want to like try and pitch myself as some sort of guru of wellness because I'm sure in 10 years time, I'll look back on this and go, the audacity I had in thinking that I had any right to tell people what my, you know, there will be things that I think are normal right now that in 3 years time I'll look back on and go fucking hell I was a bit nuts there do you know what I mean but anyway so yeah so it's that it's sort of takeaways I've had from the privilege I've had of being able to go to rehab and get well really or get better but it's also the heart of it is we hear a lot about how bad mental health provision is in this country and it is you know it isn't good enough I've spent a lot of time speaking to lots of like frontline mental health workers about what is out there, what you can access, the best ways to go about it, you know, to how to make the most of the appointments that you get, the the kind of wasting times that you should be expecting. Because I do believe that if we know what's out there and how to access it, that's when this real change starts to happen because then it can trick you know the, when the news and numbers increase it trickles you know it goes up right and the and eventually the treasury have to provide the money they say they're going to provide and actually before this I was on the phone to someone very high up in mental health and she was telling me one of the things they've done in co- during COVID was they've established everywhere has crisis lines now um, NHS crisis lines you know but there were also other amazing things like uh, shout which is the crisis text line, you know, and obviously the Samaritans. There's a lot out there to sort of support you while you wait. We just need to keep pressurising the government, really.
1: Um, Bryony, thank you so much for giving me your time, but also thank you for being so generous it, well with your experience. The I feel like the best medicine f- for me is when someone goes, I have suffered, I have been there as well. And to see somebody own it the way that you do and walk with it and bring it in close is just that's so the way that i want to be with my recovery that's what i look to not pushing it away or hiding it or trying to forget about it or re- have resent your resentment i loved that post you put up yesterday with the black stone that you know. poem,
2: yeah someone i loved once gave me a box of darkness it took me years to realize that this too was a gift
1: I'm going to leave you there. (laughs) Thank you so much,
2: Bryony.
1: Thank you, Laura. I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much, Bryony.
0: If you have been affected by any of the themes in this programme, head to the episode description for resources and helplines. Zombie Mum was produced by B. Duncan, with original music by Hugo White. It was mastered by Rob Fincham. The executive producer was Hannah Walker-Brown. This is a Broccoli production. We've come to the end of the first series of Zombie Mum. Thank you so much for joining me. Forget Mother Goose these days, boy, I am Mother Loose. And now, talking from the heart, as it's the only place I seem to know where to speak from these days, I also made the naive mistake of thinking that creating a podcast would quite simply be getting some kind of technical apparatus, pressing play, talking to somebody I admire, then pressing stop. Ta-da! Guys, I'm doing a podcast. Everyone does a podcast. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. And it really is not. The hard-working producers at Broccoli made this series during some of the toughest months globally the world has ever seen i mean it is the ingredients of a storyline that could only be conjured up by the dungeons inside the twisted minds of screenwriters that could magic some sort of hideous paranoid conspiracy theory black mirror episode as a team we were faced with both universal and personal challenges and have still as with many of the guests too not even met in real life I am three years away, almost to the date from my illness. I live alongside my experience every day. Recovery is still very precious to me. Keeping my head screwed on is my main priority. I have a toddler that needs me. Plus, it turns out, I really like not being mad. So, in the actuality of it, these themes are delicate and sensitive. When I was having these conversations, listening back, I was so tender and bruised, nervous and exposed, fearful of the future. I wasn't prepared for my own vulnerability, my inability to be articulate and coherent at times, my state of fizziness, my fluffy words, and most of all, my annoying squeaky guinea pig laugh. I suppose in the same way one might enthusiastically enjoy dancing on a night out doesn't mean one would automatically a fantastic overnight professional ballet dancer make going through something hard doesn't make me a going through something hard expert and why would i want that tough exterior anyway So, I learnt as I went, it takes a lot of practice and support to responsibly handle with care people's real truths, trauma and experiences, when they are giving so generously, whilst the anxiety of recording remotely, when the technophobe in you is praying to the aliens of Wi-Fi, Sonics, Audio and Wires that you've captured each guest's precious cargo safely, and to listen, actively, actively to shut up and not butt in, to read emotions and feelings and expressions of different people, to learn their rhythm, some strangers, to, within an hour, find their language like a dance, tuning in like whale song through the dust particles in the air, especially when you want to hold them. Some things can't be or don't need to be said, they are felt, it can't always be translated through headphones and a mic. The special really cool thing about the platform of a podcast is the shorthand. Somebody struggling or with limited time might not have the capacity to fall into the pages of a book, but they might have the time to listen to an episode, find a fairy in their ear that says, yeah, that was rough, but I made it. During the recordings, I did not account for how much I would feel, how much I would cry, don't worry, we've edited a lot of that crying out, or how much it would matter. I didn't realise how much I seek connection as a person, how much I'm fuelled by the human touch, how much I need people, the full person, the eyes, the mouth, the hands, the smell, the energy, shoes. You seem to get to the end and want to sort of do it all over again. It seems this is just scratching the surface, the beginnings of what's to come. But no, it's all there, all of it. A hopeful conversation of empathy, kindness, compassion, and of course, survival. A conversation that could make a difference, that could even go on to save someone's life thank you so much to everybody that has listened and supported zombie mum if you'd like to join my postpartum police patrol simply keep the conversation alive if you are worried about somebody check in and if you are struggling ask for help if you need to by reaching out to any of the resources we've mentioned it is truly the bravest thing a person can do it sounds so cliche but you can get better just look at you you already are